The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about public participation in peacemaking. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Peacemaking is absolutely what we need. Let me tell you about this wonderful guest that's coming to us from Virginia. Dr. Catherine Barnes is a program associate with Conciliation Resources, where she previously served as series editor and program manager of Accord, an international review of peace initiatives. And I have that right in front of me, this this wonderful book called Accord, an international review of peace initiatives, Owning the Process, Public Participation in Peacemaking. She also acted in Minority Rights Group's program as Minority Rights Group Program Manager for Europe and the former Soviet Union, and she served as Special Advisor to the Global Partnership for the Prevention of Armed Conflict, where she developed concept papers, drafted action agendas, and was involved in the process design and preparation and facilitation of regional preparatory conferences and the global conference at the UN headquarters. And this conference was from Reaction to Prevention, the Roles of Civil Society in Preventing Armed Conflict and Building Peace, involving more than a 1,000 participants from civil society, governments, and international uh, people and organizations, and that was back in 2005. She's done a tremendous amount of work. She's lived in more than 30 countries, especially Southeast Asia, South um, Central Asia, that area, and uh, she holds a doctorate degree from the Institute of Conflict Analysis and Resolution at George Mason University, And she wrote her dissertation on genocide in the 20th century. So we are so thrilled to have you join us, Catherine, all the way from Virginia. Thank you. It's good to join you. So how is it, first of all, that you really got into conflict resolution? What was it that pulled you there? Well, I think, um, like many people, it wasn't a straightforward path. <laughs> Whenever you do these things that aren't, you know, a firefighter or something like that, it's, it's often hard to even know that such a thing existed. But I was actually raised as a Quaker, which has a um, long tradition of nonviolence and active peacemaking. 
didn't ever think that I could actually do it as a as a job as such, um, but had been working really much more at the community level in, in um, at working in domestic violence shelters and community organizing. And I went to a conference about 25 years ago when someone was there, a man named Dudley Weeks was uh, talking about this emerging field of conflict resolution. And then I found out that there was actually a way of studying it. And so I uh, pursued a, an academic path doing my master's degree and then eventually a PhD in conflict analysis and resolution. And that began to open up all sorts of opportunities. And it was around that time that I found myself wanting to work more and more at the the really large-scale societal um, conflict and injustice and how to transform them through this emerging peace-building paradigm. It's fascinating, Catherine. And I, I noticed in your bio that you have lived in 30 countries. So well, I've worked in 30 countries. Oh, worked in, well, yeah. You worked <laughs> and so, so, so that wasn't actually living there. Oh, okay, it was a lot, of, but lot you, of travel, a lot of travel. A lot of fun travel, I'm sure. So, so you've worked in 30 countries. So what have you learned about the similarities and the differences in conflict in those 30 countries? Mm. Well, I guess probably one of the things that I have learned is that when you look at um, most of the societies where I've been in, and I think that this is also true of our society here in the United States, we are a part of systems of conflict that often are almost like fractals, like a, a, a fern where you see the outcroppings of it at certain, at a, at, on a leaf, and then you look at the wider leaf and the wider plant and you realize it's all a part of the same system. And that's one of the things that I've seen a lot in um, in the kinds of situations where I've worked with. There's actually uh, you know war that's been going on. Often there are long patterns of exclusion where certain um Identity groups or religious groups have been systematically excluded from the economic and political life of the country um, and understandably begin to feel a great sense of injustice because of that. And then often will um, struggle to find some way of changing that system. And sometimes that struggle ends up resulting in in, in, in groups of people from those communities taking up arms to challenge the state. But often it's not where those patterns happen. It's not necessarily just the identity groups that are excluded, but often poorer people, um, women, um, other different sections of even the the majority group often face um, face a lot of, of um, challenges. Their basic needs are not met uh, by the society in which they're in. The government is not responsive. Um, often is not accountable, um, and, and the the leaders tend to do what it is that they whatever it is that is in their own narrow interest instead of in the public interest. So I think a lot of times when I'm thinking about um, peace processes, it's partly about how can you set into motion a path in which society can begin to address those underlying causes that are leading to conflict and that are leading to conflict in the society as a whole, but in communities and often indeed in families um, that they just that patterns of violence replicating themselves. Right. And I, you know, it's, I think even in our country, we we aren't really teaching kids from the time that they're little about conflict resolution. And so it starts, you know, 
like we sing this song at my church, let peace be, begin with me, let me, you know, let yes, me be I the one, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, I do, and, I do. And so, you know, it's just like we, we've we got to start teaching peace from the time that they're little tiny kids and instill that in them and, and you know, having everyone being involved and everyone participating and everyone being heard, that has, you know, and having that as a an approach to life. Really, right? I absolutely agree with you, Mari. And I think that when people um, have the experience of that, uh, it they often, uh, in, in children, right up actually really to the end of life, but certainly from childhood onwards, not only do they have a feeling within themselves of their dignity being affirmed because they can be agents in addressing the problems that they face, but also they develop the skills and habits and the expectation that um, that's the way you deal with conflicts because conflict, of course, is inevitable. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I I have this question, you know, Catherine, you go into 30 different countries, you go into an Asian country, Southeast Asia. How are you perceived coming in um, to help with these peace processes? I mean, what kind of challenges do you personally have going in there as an outsider? Uh-uh. Well, I think that, that that's a, that's an interesting question, and, and of course, it's it, it's uh, not always perceived in the same way in the same context. One of the things I think has been very important for me, though, is I. Um, I'm always going because uh, people in the society itself have invited me to come. You know, there'll be relationships, people that I've I've known through other contexts who say, "Hey, can you know you maybe help us with working through something?" And um, and I think that it's really important. I mean, you know, it's never sort of like, "Hmm, what's going on in country X?" And then let's get on the plane and go. And and uh, instead, I'm usually always working in a context where I am supporting those in the society who are living the society who are trying to find ways um, for addressing the, um, the the challenges they're facing. So very often I've worked with civil society organizations um, and their communities have been affected by war and they're trying to find ways to address it and I feel that they are often the most important uh, change agents, um, they and the, 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 the governments or leaders of armed groups that they can engage, they can in turn influence um, and help those decision makers to find ways of ending the war and hopefully building a longer term peace. So, so long as I have been um, very strongly connected to those who are perceived as playing a legitimate role in their society. I've found that generally I've been fairly accepted. That being said, I think when you're an outsider, people very rightly are suspicious that you could ever possibly understand their situation. Right. That's, that's what I was thinking about. Yeah, <laughs> and I think one of the one of the things that I've I've um, often found to be the most important is to help them um, frame um, questions that they have, because sometimes it's when when an outsider asks a series of questions, they're better able to articulate what their own questions are. And then I um, can often help by saying, these are some of the ways that similar challenges have been addressed elsewhere. You have to find your own path forward, but it may be worthwhile thinking about, um, you know, some of the lessons that you can learn from what has been experienced elsewhere. 
Right. And then help them sometimes with the process of, of, of uh, thinking through strategies that they could put into place. Yeah, and you know, you talk in, in the book, I was reading especially in, in the beginning of the book about how, you know, oftentimes war ends between diplomats who are negotiating a result. Mm-hmm. And then they, you know, they stop the war, but but meanwhile, everybody else who is left out of the process. So let's talk about some of the key challenges in ending war through negotiations. Sure, sure. Well, I think, and of course, this is uh, another one of those ones that has a lot of different points that could be drawn up. But I think if we almost see it in terms of um, a couple of phases, first of all, this understanding that very often, I won't say always, but very often when um, there are groups of people who choose to take up arms, um, and I'm thinking particularly of the non-state armed groups, it's because they have certain goals that they're wanting to achieve, and they're so committed to those goals that they take up arms and other means to try to achieve them. So one of the first, and if they feel like those goals haven't been met through military means, then often they're very, very reluctant to... um, to to uh, actually engage in a negotiations process. Now, some of the more sophisticated ones realize that at some point they're going to have to come to the peace table, and they're trying to get there through, um, you know, have a, be it, be going into it with a position of strength. But similarly, governments, on the other hand, have a really difficult time. Um, feeling that there is any legitimacy for negotiating with those who took up arms illegally. You know, of course, often, and I, I, th- and I think we need to, dis- to distinguish these kinds of groups from, um, say, Al-Qaeda-type networks, but groups within a country um, who've taken up arms and then called terrorists, and we can never talk with terrorists, uh, that type of thing. Right, right. So sometimes the one of the biggest challenges is trying to actually construct a negotiation process. And this is probably not entirely unlike things that you find at a community level or at organizations or even in a marriage where people <laughs> people don't want to talk, they want to win. And so trying to figure out um, the, for, for them to realize that, that ultimately their future is interdependent with the others, that they're not going to be able to move forward until the others have, have, have also agreed to do so, um, becomes one of the key points. And I think it's interesting to, to note that since the 1990s, more wars have ended through a negotiated settlement than through military victory. Basically, the nature of war is such these days that low-scale armed conflicts can continue to go on for decades and wreak havoc with the population and um, the country's development. And so it sort of tilted the balance to the point where um, over the last um, seven years, there have been four times as many settlements as there have been military victories. So this whole thing of getting the groups and the decision-makers to realize that they're going to actually have to come to the table eventually, I think, is probably the first challenge. And um, there's lots of ways of doing that, but we'll we'll leave that to the side. And, and, I, and thank God they are doing that instead of dropping bombs, you know, mm. like an atomic bomb. I think that that is something that uh, we know that that happened, and since then we've been trying to end things in a different way as as much as we can, you know. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, so, but I think you know. The, I want to get back to the issue, really, basically of of you know owning the process. Exactly, that, and that was, I think, then as is the next set of challenges, which yeah. is that once you do have negotiations, 
does it become a kind of a, how do we divide up the spoils of war? (laughs) Or at what point and how do the things that are being negotiated actually address the underlying causes of conflict? And I think that's the piece to me that becomes the most important one. Um, And what we've often found is that um, when there's a lot of pressure to reach a quick agreement between um, the armed groups and the government of the day, sometimes there's a kind of dividing up the spoils. So sort of, okay, we'll do a power-sharing government and you you can have this position, we can have that position, you can divide up this, you can have that. What we've found is that when you start having a much more comprehensive and inclusive negotiation process, the actual agenda of issues that are talked about begins to change, and the types of agreements that are reached actually begin to address some of the underlying causes of war and begin to deal with the injustices that often made the system vulnerable to war. And how does that happen? Often it happens when the process is not actually negotiated by diplomats, but is one where the people themselves have said, we need to have a voice in this process. We saw it in South Africa, where they had um, uh, any political party that wanted to have a role in the negotiations could have a role. And so it was a very long process. It took seven years, because you can imagine there's a lot of complexity with that. But it became widely perceived as the legitimate negotiating forum. Um, Similarly, in Northern Ireland, um, there were 15 parties to the groups. And and interestingly, Mari, one of the the, um, political parties that participated was a newly formed party of women, both um, Protestant and Catholic women, coming together to form the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition so that they could have a seat at the table of the negotiating agreements. And they were all the mothers and wives that lost their spouses. And and the teachers and the the lawyers and (laughs) development workers. Mm -hmm. And what they started doing is they started, they knew what were the interests of the people of society. And interestingly, they would come together um, because the, because the, uh, the mainstream political parties were saying, oh, no, no, these issues would never um, be accepted by our community. But these women would, go, would, would have consultations within their own communities and come together, and they had to form a joint platform, as it were, a joint negotiating platform as things they bring into the talks. And they started realizing, hey, if you don't address these, the people aren't going to accept it. Mm-hmm. And once again, this was a process that took a long period of time, extensive negotiations, but it needed to, because if we think back, for example, to our own history in America, where out of the Revolutionary War, there was this long process of negotiating the Constitution of the United States, right. and you had lots of people with different interests, different things that they wanted to address, but it was through that process of... Um, of of having people who were largely, you know, we must admit there weren't there weren't women, there, weren't, right. there certainly right. weren't African Americans, there weren't a lot of people were left out of the process, but those who were negotiating it were considered legitimate from the you know the people of the day of their of their community who were the decision makers, largely at that time white men um, who had property. Um, nevertheless, they came and they represented their own geographic areas until they were able to work through all the differences and come up with the constitution. 
persecution. And in a very similar way, they did that in South Africa, only much more inclusively. And out of those processes emerged a kind of a sense of the social contract of the state as being um, responsive to the needs of the people and how they were going to address the key issues that they wanted of the day. In South Africa, which had almost equal numbers of women delegates by the um, through by the end of the process, they have one of the most um, gender progressive constitutions on um, on on the earth. And then also, it was also interesting is that by the end of the negotiations, they were actually talking about the issues that mattered most to people, such as you know this is a country of of many 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 different languages, and they were talking about things of what's going to be the language of education in the schools, and um, you know these very practical matters that actually make a big big difference to. Uh, to the lives of real people, and then people start becoming committed to that new constitution, become committed to the new things that have emerged out of the process, so it becomes more sustainable and um, and, and is able to withstand all the pressures that come over the time, much as um, our constitution in the United States have even though we, of course, did have the Civil War and even today <laughs> have debates right. around it. But it, it gave a framework um, at a <clears throat> very large-scale level for um, managing the conflicts that, that uh, societies have within them. And so the process itself matters for the outcomes that come. Yeah, and, you know, it's easier when I'm in a mediation with two people than when I'm in a mediation with 10 people or 12 people. And and so you're talking about major company, uh, major countries mm-hmm. that are in conflict. And, and you know, I aptly, this book is called Owning the Process, Public Participation and Peacemaking. And I know and you know, as people who are in the peacemaking process, that when each person has an ownership when they are able to be heard, even if not everything that they asked for was in there, but they've been able to be heard there. Some of the things have been incorporated in, then they, they, they feel good about it. They own it. They're committed to it and they're willing to abide by whatever the, the agreement is. And so how do you do that when you have so many diverse factions, you know, I mean, how, how do you, how do you, what's the answer? How do you do well, Yeah, how do you structure a negotiation yeah. process, a multi-party negotiation process where people do get heard? Yeah. Well, yes, and, and, and what you find is, um, is first of all, <laughs> it's not easy. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, and I think that one of the things that seems to make a difference is when um, there's been a lot of consultations at the beginning about what kinds of issues are going to be addressed on the negotiating agenda, and um, when you when also there's certain techniques like nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. That right. was used in, in Northern Ireland and they had borrowed that from South Africa and then was later on used in Indonesia. So these kinds of ideas that um, that are, are sort of technical in nature but allow people to talk and to explore options and explore what might be might be workable without committing to it until they've seen whether they're going to get some of the things that are really important to them later on in the negotiating agenda. So do you have you have international mediators go out and speak with each and every faction that's out there and kind of put together an agenda and share it with everybody? I mean, is that kind of what yeah. you're doing? Like, well, some, some 
Sometimes there are people, in some processes, that's exactly what happens. But actually, some of the places that I've seen have been most interesting have not been done with an international mediator as such. Um, that in South Africa, for example, they did not want international mediators because they were afraid that a, uh, an outcome would be imposed on them and right. that there'd be efforts to twist their arms to reach an agreement that they did not want to reach. So it was actually um, a coalition between uh, the progressive business community and the churches in South Africa that actually chaired the negotiations process and acted as the sort of secretariat for the process and helped um, do the facilitation and and not necessarily lead mediation, but do some of those mediation type roles that you would ex- that that can be needed. You know, do, you know, bringing people together to to, um, to into dialogue, uh, facilitating messages, going back and forth, that type of thing. Um, and in in some places in in Guatemala in the 90s, it was actually um, a forum of civil society that had come together, um, and in the midst of war and dis- and basically uh t- engaged in enough deliberative dialogue until they had identified um what they saw as the causes of war in Guatemala and the issues that needed to be addressed to bring about peace and they developed a, a, a an agenda themselves of nine um kind of arenas of issues that needed to be addressed and then they uh were actually involved alongside an internationally mediated process in reaching agreements on things like land reform, on what would be the status of the indigenous peoples in society, what was going to be the the role of the military if they had a constitutional democracy. These kind of really thorny, difficult issues, and they um, themselves were were deeply divided. They came from from political, uh, ideological, and ethnic lines. Um, They were very deeply divided. And because they came together and were willing to kind of work through the issues and figure out what could be good agreements, interestingly enough, the government and the the rebel group pretty much agreed to all of the proposals that they put forward. There's lots of different kinds of models that can be used, um, and some of them are consultative, as happened in Guatemala. Some of them are... um, uh, direct negotiations has happened in um, South Africa and we had and and in Northern Ireland, and I think what is interesting in all of these places is that the, there was not an international mediator who was coming up with the text of an agreement and then trying to convince the parties to sign on to it. Instead, those many many different um, individuals and groups uh, were act- were having to engage in in direct dialogue with each other to f- to and to use a lot of creativity to figure out what could work what would meet the interests and also what was going to be in the long term needs of their country and um, use all their creativity as well as ultimately make some hard trade-offs also. Um, there were definite trade-offs, but these processes are taking things like seven years. I think we contrast this to the Loya-Zerja for Afghanistan, where, there, where the U.S. was facilitating talks between Afghani factions. Three days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and now we yeah, see the conundrum. Yeah, we see what happens. You, can't, you cannot rush the process. You can't rush it, unfortunately. No, no, it, it is the process. Uh, uh, it's the journey, not the destination sometimes. Sometimes. 
so important to create mm-hmm. differences. But we are out of time, believe it or not. That was wonderful. And I, I want to make sure that people have a chance to look at this uh, wonderful book that you have, Accord, an International Review of Peace Initiatives, Owning the Process, Public Participation in Peacemaking. And you are the wonderful editor. Why don't you just give the website for this uh, for this wonderful program, that is um, the the Accord publication can be found on www.c-r.org, and then if you do forward slash Accord, you get to the actual um, pages where where the where this edition as well as others are located. Well, Catherine, keep up the wonderful work. I think it's just fabulous. And if we could only teach those processes to little kids to start, then maybe it wouldn't take seven years, maybe only a year to do some of these <laughs> things. But thank you, and we will thank keep you. in touch. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank host of Prescriptions for Healing Conflict, which airs every Monday morning at 8.30. Join us next Monday and we would love to hear from you. And visit our website at conflicthealing.com. Thanks. It's about trust. Yeah, yeah. It's about faith. It's about trust. Expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.